When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last week, we spoke briefly about burials uh, and how they were done with a couple of uh, specific individuals. Uh, these people were both high-status individuals, so of course, had a bit of a different burial time than what the rest of the world would have been like, and had different grave goods than what we're used to. Well, we're going to go a little bit further into this, and we're going to talk about the change that happens in Britain at this time period in the Bronze Age, specifically around the idea of what is considered a new cultural paradigm. Now, some people say that, especially some experts will tell you that this could be a cultural movement or it could be an actual movement of population. And it's harder to tell, but there does seem to be some verification of both counts. Uh, specifically, this is called a change in burial practices, which includes something called a beaker. Now, beakers refers to the type of pottery that people were buried with. And initially, when you were in, exhumed, or when you were interred, you would be interred holding a beaker, uh, type pottery cup. Um, sometimes they look like mugs, sometimes they look a lot like a science beaker. However, as we move on into the um, into that age, we end up having a different style of burial, which really hadn't been noted in Britain before this. And whether this movement created this, or whether this was something that came about because of necessity, or if there was another reason for it, we don't really know. And that's actually in cremation burials. Uh, if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 
at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. We see this in a number of cases that as the Bronze Age moves along, burials then transfer from being simply something where you inter the dead uh, to a ritualization of the dead and how they're actually buried. Uh, initially, as buries, burials are made, when you're put into the ground, you put in a fetal position, which of course would lead one to wonder, well, why are they putting them in a fetal position? What significance would that be? Uh, there's a lot of theories around it. Obviously, one of the thoughts would be you're in a womb like this. You come out of the womb, um, and then you go back into the womb, in effect. Uh, another theory is, is that the fact that people would sleep like this. So, of course, if you curl up when you're sleeping, this would symbolize somebody who's asleep as opposed to being dead. And the other thing they would do often is tuck their hands underneath their head. So then not only did you have this person being buried this special way, but then you also put their hands under their head. Again, hearkening back to the idea of being buried, I would say. Right. Now, the next practice that was done, and it continues on from there, is at one point in some parts of Britain and Ireland, and this was actually a popular burial without that, is we move from the megalithic burials with great, huge, massive uh, internment of family members and or tribe members to a burial that is actually just one person, but still is in a way very similar in the megalithic type of burial. In this particular case, what they would do is they would create what looks to us very similar to a coffin. You would actually uh, put the person in the ground. You would hollow out an area of dirt. Then you would position stone in a coffin shape around the burial. And then you would put a lid, usually a great big stone lid, on top to cover off the burial. So these became called kists, and they're very popular, like I said, in some parts of Britain. Um, they aren't necessarily everywhere. They're really popular in Devon. Um, as well as the south and northeast of Britain. It uh, 
didn't really, I mean, there are evidence that there was something similar in Wales. There's not huge amounts of evidence for particular burials like this happening in those areas. It's much more popular in a very rocky area than where stone's easier to come across than it is in, say, an open plain or something along that line. So the other aspect of this is, is you get cremation burials. Now, cremation burial is interesting because you're still burying them with grave goods. You're still putting them in the earth. But this time you've actually burned the body. Now, there's lots of theories on how this was done. Uh, one rather gruesome sounding description that I've heard is uh, it was actually put forward by some archaeologists is that you would take the body of the dead person and put it on a, a dais or on some sort of wooden structure wherein it would allow the animals to basically pick the body clean. Once the body had been turned into bones, you then burn the bones and then you take that ash and that's your cremation, which you then put into an urn and then you bury the urn. Whether this is exactly how it happened, I, I couldn't honestly say, uh, but no matter how they did it, they did cremate people, and it was actually fairly popular in the Bronze Age. It, in fact, became popular enough that there's evidence of it being used widespread across the UK. In Britain, barrows were in wide range use uh, from the end of the late Neolithic period until the end of the Bronze Age, basically from 2900 BCE to 800 BCE. Barrow construction centered on one single barrow burial, usually put at either the top or the bottom of the earthen structure. As we discussed before, ancient people loved ritualizing high places in Egypt in this period. The great pharaohs were building their massive pyramids to shape the landscape and create a monument to their dead pharaoh. During the Neolithic period, mounds were made and called long barrows for placing the dead in. However, in northeast Wales, near named Trelaunid, uh, is a place called the Gop, which is a mound which appears to have been made in the Neolithic period. And unlike barrows, it, it however, doesn't have any burials. Uh, some think it was likely used as a lookout point, and as this is an area in the northeast, right at the borders of where the rest of England lie, it likely could have been a uh, lookout point leading into what was then, obviously, tribal territory. In southwest Britain, barrows became the way to bury the dead. Uh, these large mounds of dirt were placed over top of burials. Most likely, you would think this would be a high-status individual, important enough to have such a massive communal effort, because, of course, in order to make a mound like this, it wasn't a five-minute thing. You had people working with stone or bronze tools, so it took time and effort. And so to usually think of why you would go about doing that, it would typically you would think need to be somebody of great importance or significance to the community. I mean, obviously somebody who's honored for being a wonderful person or specially needed to be recognized, they might consistently use them or consistently try and remember them in a way. And I think that's one way you do that. And there have been hundreds of barrows found in West Southwest England. And I think as we look at it, it's not just a feature of that part of England. It's also a feature across the landscape. Even going into West Wales and prehistory, uh, there was barrows there. Um, as there's a place called the Fan Barrow at uh, Talsarn, uh, some 16 miles south of Aberystwyth. This area previously featured Neolith in the Neolithic period, 
and also in our discussion of mining for the Bronze Age, uh, burials found in the Edwardian period uh, and a few years ago showed that there was a barrow position near the current village. It's actually been wiped away, but they found evidence of it. Also found with the modern excavation was evidence that the site had been used as far back as the Neolithic period for burials. So this was a site that was a fairly holy site. And as we've talked about, this area around Aberystwyth was incredibly important to our ancient ancestors. Uh, it's the area not far from where the stones for Stonehenge from Wales came from. But also it's it's an area that was used for tin mining during the Bronze Age and, and continues to feature as an important area going at least into the Middle Ages in Britain. Um, Wales in the coastal and mountain ranges uh, maintained a connection to other people, be it through trade, warfare, marriage, slaves, or other means or cultural practices with other British people, which continued to spread around the island. So just because you did something in one area didn't mean that you couldn't do it in another area. In fact, we find that this is fairly common, that things spread around the island as, as people make contact with others. Uh, not unlike how some names that might be popular in some part of the world become popular in North America, or the reason why certain names are used more often than others. Uh, same reason why you find somebody walking down the streets of London with a New York Yankees cap. It's, you know, cultural crossover. Uh, and as you have trade, that happens more and more because you see other things, right? You get out, you're not just living in your little village or your little farm area. You're actually experiencing a wider world. And by that, you're actually experiencing different cultures. And sometimes we have a tendency to see these other cultures and say, hey, that's kind of cool. I'm going to take that back with me. And then we use those practices in our new cultural idea. So as we move from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, people continue to interact and begin to reach out to the rest of Europe and Africa. So not only do we see a stretch of trade and understanding amongst the British population, but Britain will continue to actually move farther and farther afield uh, and create an understanding with more populations. Uh, and as we go, this tendency to create these connections culturally will then create within them uh, an idea of ritualization which creates a concept within ourselves of how can I see something and want it. I mean look at how we got Bronze Age mining. Mining and or not mining but Bronze Age uh, smelting comes to Britain fairly late by comparison to the rest of the world especially the rest of Europe and going into uh, the Middle East, it only becomes sort of important enough late on. And so you have this tendency of people to suddenly now want to do this. And it's kind of the same way with a lot of things. I think there's a tendency to bring that cultural understanding further afield. And as we do that, we will continue to see these crossover events. We see tribes that will pick up coinage at some points. There will be tribes that start to understand and use different ways of tallying and marking. And in some parts of Europe, that'll lead to language. It leads to all sorts of writing and all sorts of things like that. Unfortunately, in Britain, and this is where we run into huge problems in the prehistoric period, there's none of that. Uh, we think there's a likelihood that language was used as far back as the Iron Age in a writing aspect. At least there's thought to be evidence of it in Ireland of Proto-Irish Gaelic and 
that likely it was probably over in Britain as well, and that Proto-Welsh or Proto-Gaelic, whatever you want to call it, Proto-Celtic, existed as a written form of language, and that there may have been some form of literacy, but we don't really know, and we're not totally certain. These are things that are just simply conjecture based on what we know about the language going forward after the Roman period. However, we assume that based on some of the finds that we found in Ireland. But the reality of it is, unless people started to write things down, and initially economically started writing things down, we the, the earliest forms of writing are typically surrounding how to tally and keep track of things, or through mysticism and through religion, and trying to keep things hidden. And it's only as time goes on that it develops into something that's used by the wider population. And in so you have a limited amount of people that could use it, a limited reason to use it, and in all honesty, probably a limited amount of people who even understood language to the point where they could actually write it down. That being the case, uh, you have the added problem that most of the writing that may have been done may have been done on wood, and or something destructible and unfortunately unlike other areas where stone was used we just there just isn't evidence of anything possibly because of that possibly for the fact that there just wasn't any it's it's really hard to know and i hedge my bets on making too much too many comments about it just simply because because we don't know we're just kind of guessing based on other people and how they uh learned and understood things but the reality of it is I mean, if there is no evidence, there probably isn't anything going on. But it, it does make it more tricky when there could be evidence, but we can't find it because it just decomposed. Uh, as we go into the Iron Age, and we will move in there starting the next episode, we start to see a change in how people start to develop rituals. And I think we can start commenting on some of the things that happened in that era that stretch into our current era of understanding. And by that, I mean, where before there may have been rituals that were done, which may still be in some way or some understanding existing currently. Now I can actually point to you things that are happening in the Iron Age that I can say still happen today. And there are some things that we will look at, which coming out of that era will maintain its hold on the British population long, long, long time. Um, you know, as much as we talked about Stonehenge in the past and the effect that it had from the ancient times to becoming sort of a tourist trap in modern times, it was always a place of fascination, so much so that we find people buried from across the UK there. Um, its majesty as, a, as an ancient uh, wonder make it a fascinating thing to study. And it's one of those rare things that we can look at from the ancient world in Britain that still survives today. But even aside from that, there are some myths, there are some understandings, there are some ritualizations that we do, which were done back in ancient times that we still do today. We may not consider them the same way they did then. But again, going back to the, it's hard to know what people thought then. We can only guess. Um, there is some basic things that are happening, and we can discuss at least one of them right now. Uh, in the Bronze Age, and it became more popular in the Iron Age, and became more popular and more popular and more popular, 
And we have briefly talked about the idea of deposits and people putting precious things in places. And if you think about it, that becomes very important as we move along. The Romans believed in this. They absolutely categorically believed in, in, in preserving, uh, items or burying items for ritualized reasons because there are things buried that make no sense otherwise. I mean, yes, there's discoveries of ancient hordes where probably at some point in Roman times when things got bad, people buried their wealth. And then if they died or worse, you know, lost track of where they put it, well, I guess that's not worse than dying, but you know what I mean? Um, these things would be hidden until somebody found them many years later, either through using a, a metal detectorist or in some respects trying to figure out or accidentally stumbling upon it like farmers probably would all the time. Uh, so those kind of things would happen then, but that's not what we're talking about here. And, and what we'll go much further into next episode is the concept of taking an item that may have been precious to you or may not have been precious to you, but yet you want the good luck off of it. And so you take that item and you bury it, or you take that item and put it in a ritualized location that seems spiritual. And specifically what we'll start to talk about more and more is the idea of fresh water as a ritualized location. And the concept behind that being that we will see people take swords, tools, later coins in the Roman era, and throw them into water sources. And if you think about this, why is this significant to us? And why do I point out the fact that it's probably something that's carried forward? Well, think about the times you go to a mall or you go someplace where there's a fountain and people throw coins in it. Now, nowadays we do it for luck in quotes, and some people do it because of course it goes to charity eventually, or some people just do it because that's what everybody else is doing. Why are we doing that? Well, I would argue it, it comes out of this era of taking a valuable or taking something significant and trying to put it into the water for a ritualized reason, be it, and let's be honest, it could also be for the same reasons it is now, which is people are putting it in because others did it. So maybe people are putting it in because of the luck issue and, or maybe they're just, it's just something everybody did. Maybe it was the big religious deal of the day. So everybody just did that. So they would put swords, they would put coins, they would put all sorts of interesting things, uh, into fresh water. Now we're talking about uh, like lakes and rivers. Um, there's a lot of op, a lot of finds of these kind of things being found with obviously with no reason for them to be there other than that. And in the Roman period, we'll find that way they'll bury coins that way, uh, both in water sources and in the ground. Typically they used to do that along trackways, which I think is an interesting idea. And they would bury things like denarii, which are very tiny financially coins. So, we're not talking about somebody burying their gold. It's usually something that either maybe it may have been broken, may not be significant to them anymore. Might be a, somebody else has given them, you know, like your mom giving you a penny and having you throw it in the fountain. Who knows, right? So we don't completely know why they're doing this, but we can hazard some guess based on some of the things we do and make a supposition as to why that might be. Now, other interesting aspect of this, if you think about, um, stories and legends. Well, one of the things that comes out of this whole idea of burying items in the water 
is the idea of the lady in the lake who gives uh, Excalibur to King Arthur. In that case, a very valuable thing comes out of the water in a story period, which supposedly is in a Christian period where there isn't supposed to be this kind of stuff going on of water gods who give you things. But the lady of the lake gives him a sword. So there is this concept that likely this is a mythological legend that's come out of a much more ancient past that moves forward into the future. And while the story of uh, the Lady of the Lake comes to us in the Middle Ages and is kind of a, an invention at some point in the High Middle Ages, we can find evidence of something similar to that in the story of Grendel from the Anglo-Saxon Old English story. So we're talking much earlier than that. So I think there's a concept of gods and goddesses that exist in water sources and this concept around why there would be these gods and goddesses there and what they would be up to. Um, obviously, like I said, you can't point directly to current myth or current legends and say, yeah, this is obviously a comparison to what happened in the Bronze Age or whatever. But what you can take from it is you can take that people were trying to understand or trying to describe why they were doing this as you would. And one would think that it would be a ritualized item. So thus, you have to explain it around that. You have to understand it in a ritual. And as we go along, we'll find more and more of this ritual being transferred into something modern. In the case of a lot of deities that we'll learn about as time goes on, they'll be transformed into saints in the early Catholicism of Britain. And there will be this motive and movement of, of trying to get these pagan gods out of the limelight and into a position where they're acceptable to the Christian faith. And it's, it's interesting to say, I, I suggest and suspect that that's pretty much what happened with a lot of traditions wherein they were moved from one tradition to another. Much like when the Romans actually would invade places, often they would adapt uh, the local gods to their gods and basically say, oh, you, you worship so-and-so, well, we have one just kind of like him, you know? So you can call your water god Neptune or whatever. And so there's that kind of thing going on. And of course, when Christianity comes along, having learned this lesson from Roman religious movement probably co-opted the idea of saying, well, oh, you have a guy you call a god. Well, he's not a god. He's a saint, you know, or she's a saint. Uh, and of course, because you don't have massive, well-written academic documents at the time and a population that can't read, uh, it's a lot easier to kind of feed them stuff like that and people accept it and they just understand it like that. So then a hundred years later, it's not just uh, uh, somebody's idea of trying to merge your uh, pagan god into the Christianity, but rather it becomes Christianity. It has obviously always been that way. The other thing that we find as the Bronze Age comes to an end is that we start to have populations that are growing. I wouldn't say dramatically, but they're growing to the point where they're starting to bump up against each other. They're starting to compete for space. And whenever there's environmental changes, it can cause, a, a, if not a full-out collapse, it can create friction amongst various peoples. 
And that will lead to battles, wars. Uh, it leads to all sorts of interesting ideas. Uh, and as archaeologists continue to look at it, it becomes apparent to them that this is very much heavily influencing how people maintain their sense of identity and how we come to be, because that conflict amongst them will create a lot of unity amongst those in the conflict, right? Much like in most wars, people become much more patriotic and much more about their country. Well, certainly I would think it would be sort of the same way about the tribe. The tribe becomes a whole lot more important when you're trying to save your livelihood or your life and you want backing and you want that help. So as we move along, like I said, you'll see this continue to be an issue and it'll continue to grow uh, into the Iron Age where we will see a change in the way people actually live and how they raise families, farms, and agriculture in general. And the other thing we'll see as the Iron Age begins is the development of trade and how Britain as a whole starts to reach out to the larger world. And next week we're going to get into the controversial topic in Welsh history and archaeology and the history and archaeology of the British Isles, which is the origins and evidence of the Celts. And I hope you are able to follow with us on Twitter. We're the Welsh History Pod. We are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And you can also find us on Podbean at welshhistorypodcast.podbean.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.